There's a whole crowd of men out there who need this. Welcome to the case study. This case study will be marked down in time. Known to all as the record keeper of the historic rise of the woke man. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Actually, welcome, gentlemen. I don't know if any women will be listening to this, but quite frankly, I don't care. What I want is to see the change in man. Yes, that's hurt. The change in man. This is the Woke Man series, where you hear the stories of men who changed, who laid to rest their old ways of thinking, and who opened up and started expressing their truth. Revealing emotion, strengthening their self-awareness, and breaking free from the old paradigm of being a man. This is going to help men find the courage to open up, to break the shackles of toxic masculinity, and to guide them home in becoming a better man. Let's go. Oh, by the way, it's Luca. Luca Reedy. From the Feeling Alive podcast. And The Woke Man is a sub-series. You're welcome. Welcome back to The Woke Man series, ladies and gentlemen, the greatest case study on man where we're looking at the conscious journey and what it takes men that have been in a deep, dark place, how to rise out of it and become the best version of themselves or on that path. And just remember, this isn't a destination. It's a journey and we're all on it and we're all on different parts of this journey. And today I'm with my brother, Cam Fraser, Welcome to the Woke Man, man. Thanks for having me on, my brother. No worries, bro. So the first question is, where did you grow up and where do you live now? Uh, I was uh, born in North London and spent a couple of years there before moving with the family uh, into Perth, Western Australia, which is what I would consider my home and where I grew up for the most part. Yeah. And um, I live now on the road in a bus, uh, predominantly in the southwest region of WA. Uh, we're in October actually moving into a new house, which is in Margaret River. Mm. And um, we're super excited to do that, my fiance and I, uh, to start a life and settle and have kids and mm. send them to school and do all the good things down in the Margaret River area. So that's, you awesome. know, I've done a lot of traveling. I've kind of called this, you know, southwest area of WA my home. And, um, and yeah, it's where I kind of grew up and it's where I am now. Yeah, wicked, man. What's been your big, the most rewarding part of living in a bus? Most rewarding part, I think, oh, has been the amount of time I've been able to spend with my fiance. Like, I'm able to um, work from the bus as well, and I don't have to go into an office. I don't mm. have to, you know, uh, I don't have to um, drive anywhere. You know, we can we can kind of pick everything up, you know, in our house, which is the bus, and just kind of drive it to the beach or drive it to the forest or drive it into wherever we're, wherever we're going really and um, and just spend time together, go on walks, um, hang out, you know, everything that we need is kind of with us so we don't really need to worry about packing up or setting up or doing any of that sort of superfluous miscellaneous crap. We can yeah. just kind of spend time together which is beautiful. Wow, that's good because sometimes that would be like a really, a really big challenge for a lot of people, right? Like you want to really make sure... I can imagine a lot of people listening to this are like, ooh, because you know, you work in like FIFO and whatever you got a lot of like predominantly western australia's the industry there they there's a lot of men that spend time away from their partners so 
being it can be quite confronting would you agree like for some people spending time with their partners so closely 100% man you've got nowhere to hide if something goes down it's yeah. not like you can just go into your room or your office or to the other end of the house and try and avoid one another you got to deal with whatever's come up yeah and for sure and we this isn't our first you know journey spending time in close quarters together we spent a couple of months driving around like i was saying to you in a van uh, around australia where uh, we were still pretty new into the relationship it was and we were only about a year maybe two years in and um and yeah spending four months in a little mitsubishi express driving around australia together uh mm. all the shit that came up we had to deal with um and you know there was a kind of a, like a dry run a test run for whether we could live together, whether we could actually um, spend a, you know, a, a majority of our time together, which is kind of what we wanted to do. We both wanted to work from home and that sort of lifestyle. So um, awesome, but we could do it. And then, and then we jumped into the bus and, and things have just kind of, you know, things have come up. We're not saints and we're not perfect. We're still humans and shit still hits the fan every now and again. But, you know, you, you deal with it, you process it and you, you practice what you preach, I suppose. Yeah, totally, man. How old are you now? Um, oh, fuck. Uh, I... <laughs> I'm 20. Am I 26? I'm 26. Yeah, I think I, I turned 27 this year. Really? Yeah. Fuck, yeah. that is mind blowing. Uh, why? Do I do I, do I look too <laughs> Yeah, you look like shit, man. No, <laughs> no yeah, I, that's just like, like, I just feel like you've done so much or you just have this energy about you, which is like very, yeah, wise in that figure. So that's, so wow. I've been very to to travel and to experience a lot of things and have really tried to put myself out there and and um yeah just soak up as possible in as short amount of time as possible so hopefully i'll slow down now that i'm you know getting to closer to 30 than i am to 20. yeah good on you brother and what are you doing for a living right now at the moment i'm coaching men um through their sexuality and through their through their sexual concerns so i'm a men's sex coach Mm -hmm. and um yeah, that's been a bit of a, I can talk into that, but it's been a bit of a um, twisting, turning, kind of navigating journey to get to that specific title. You know, I've, I've been a tantric massage therapist before. I've been a, a tantric practitioner. I've been a yoga teacher. I've uh, been a um, like counselor, kind of sex therapist. And now I've kind of settled on sex coaching, uh, really because I feel like sex coaching allows me to incorporate a bunch of other modalities that talk therapy and counseling just didn't allow for me or that exclusively massage and body work didn't allow for me as well so Mm -hmm. it's like i guess i can you know under the umbrella term of coaching i can bring in all these extra um things that i've learned all these trainings that i've done all these other modalities that i'm trained in Mm -hmm. uh, i can bring that into the coaching process which you know um i wasn't really allowed to do if i was counseling i couldn't do any hands-on work if i was under the counseling um, you know, modality. And then I couldn't really do any talk therapy stuff if I was doing only body-based work. So it just, um, it just allows me to kind of be between those two worlds. So that's been a, that's been a huge journey to get to where I am. Um, the men's sex coach and I work predominantly, if not exclusively with men, um, because that's my lived experience as well, right? I'm a, I'm a, you know, uh, straight, uh, white guy, you know, and I, speak to that you know i everything that i share online comes from that perspective i don't try and pretend that i'm something that i'm not i you know refer on to people if they've got something that 
you know, if, if a client comes to me with something that I can't handle um, because I'm not trained or that's not my area of expertise, I refer them on to someone who I think is more appropriate to work with them. Um, for example, women, like I don't have a womb, I don't have a vulva, I don't have a clitoris. I, you know, maybe I've probably seen more vaginas and vulvas than the average person, but um, that's not my area of expertise. I can't tell a woman how she should feel pleasure because I've never experienced that in my own body myself. So yeah. that's kind of a bit of a personal philosophy, but um, that's why I specify that I'm a men's yeah. sex coach. So needed too, man. So needed. Like I know we're going to be working together too, which I'm really excited for because I think there's so much untapped potential in men in that area. Like, like I mean, just talking about the conditioning, right? Like, I think this even on this woke man series, there's probably going to be a lot of people that are that have those like maybe some insecurities, maybe some conditioned belief about what sex really is, and you know you really un help people if you were to talk about like explain sex coaching in an example for those listening, like what would that look like working with another man? Yeah, so um, it's it can be uh, quite personal, quite unique, depending on what a guy is coming to me for, but a lot of times men will reach out to me because there's some sort of function issue. So they'll, they'll say, look, I've got, um, I think I'm coming too quickly uh, and they'll, you know, self-diagnose themselves with premature ejaculation. Um, or they'll say, I'm having trouble getting an erection or it's something like physically will be going on for them. That's generally why guys reach out to me is because physically something's going, going down for them, um, rather than something emotionally or mentally, which is oftentimes I think maybe where women, um, will reach out for help. Mm -hmm. Uh, that just tends to be a stereotypical gender difference. Um, and so like guys will present with some type of function kind of concern. And then from there we start to yes, work on that physically. And, and I'll give guys like practices and strategies, your know, tips and techniques, all that kind of, I would, you know, tongue in cheek say kind of surface level stuff, you know, things that, um, things that aren't like super really deep, I suppose, in terms of like doing the work. It's just like, here's a bunch of strategies you can do like to change your breath, um, yeah. to release from your body stuff that's like quite um, surface level but by virtue of doing that by virtue of releasing tension from the body by virtue of becoming more aware of sensations and pleasure in your body you know by virtue of doing that you then start to unlock whatever's going on for them a little bit deeper so usually then the um the physical reason for their premature ejaculation or erectile dysfunction to use those examples kind of becomes alleviated and the psychological re reason or the mental or the emotional reason kind of has a light shine upon it. And it's like, oh fuck, I'm actually anxious, really anxious about what it means for me to be a man when I'm being sexual. Like, and if I come too quickly, then that's a, uh, that's a, a black mark against me as a, as a masculine man in the bedroom. And so like we start to disentangle those stories about masculinity and sexuality, which um, maybe you know, a lot of guys haven't thought of before that, you know, they're actually very interrelated. So, um, so to, to say what a typical kind of coaching thing, uh, program looks like is, is difficult because it's quite individual and personal when I try and tailor to what the guy is looking for. Um, but, but in terms of an overall structure, what I really try and work on is, um, and what I shared with you the other day is like a three part process of doing some preparation work. So getting the body ready, getting the mind ready, you know, it's like a warm up. So if we think of like a sporting analogy, it's like doing your stretching, doing your warming up, um, getting the body ready to then transition to the next part of the program, which is like the training, your training exercises, your training practices, going a little bit deeper, uh, 
honing and building new skills, um, not only physical skills, but also like new uh, ways of thinking and, and creating like new narratives in your head about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a sexual man, particularly. And then transitioning from then on to like your, your quote unquote game day practices or game day exercises where um, you're interacting with another person. So you've done all this stuff by yourself and you've done the work by yourself. But, you know, a lot of us want to share our sexuality with another person. Right? It's one of the reasons why we do the work in the first place is because we want to then be comfortable being sexual with another person. Mm -hmm. So um, the last couple of weeks of the program um, that I run, three-month program, is um, all about how to connect and engage with another person um, and and get the most out of your sex life. And, and, you know, call me crazy, but I think sex and masturbation are supposed to be pleasurable. So that's, you know, what I focus my, my practice on is being pleasure positive. So what's hindering your experience of pleasure what's hindering your partner's experience of pleasure if you've got a partner and how can we kind of work to alleviate those things and and experience more pleasure together and by ourselves it's epic man deep work i love that what's yeah, one what's one thing you're really good at cam one thing i'm really good at i think is um being open being open and honest and vulnerable um you know, I kind of have to be by default because of the work that I'm doing. Um, you know, I, I try and, I suppose, be a bit of an example, lead by example with regards to talking about sexuality and um, and sexual health as well, I think. So um, that's something that has always kind of been a little bit natural to me, but I've really had to work on like, okay, owning my shit. The example that I usually give is, um, with regards to this is like, I used to teach yoga specifically, um, and like that was that was all all I was doing for my for my work at the time, and I was really hyper aware and hyper vigilant that I was a guy, I was, I was male in that yoga teacher space where there's a majority of, um, especially where I was, which is in Perth, there was a majority of women teaching yoga, so it was quite a uh, female oriented and dominated dominated space, and then on top of that all of my students were pretty much women as well. So I probably had like one guy in the class that I was teaching out of a class of 2025. 20, and I remember when I first stepped into that space and first started teaching yoga, I was like, oh, I've got to really make sure that I'm, you know, I'm this guy who's like, you know, I, I never did any hand adjustments. I was never touching my students. Like I was always hyper vigilant of not being that that creepy yoga teacher who like you know steps over the line or says something or does something inappropriate and i was very kind of reserved in 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 um in how i felt about things like i was you know when i was not teaching yoga i was studying sexuality really passionate about sexual health and pleasure and you know exploring our bodies and and you know in my private practice i was doing massage as well so um there was this um you know, discordance between who I was when I was teaching yoga and and who I was when I was you know in my private life and I was like you know this is me being inauthentic and not being open and not being honest and not having integrity with like what it is that I'm passionate about and who I am as a person when I'm teaching yoga I'm kind of putting this mask on of like you know because um, I want to try and protect my myself against being labeled that creepy guy who's interested in sex and who's bringing sex into the space um, and so I kind of slowly worked on that and I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm interested in sexuality and, and I'm interested in pleasure and I'm interested in helping people experience my pleasure, not because I'm a creep, but because that's something that I'm genuinely, authentically passionate about and, and want to do with my career and want to study and, and have like a, a really um, deep um, you know, yearning to, to learn more about. So I was like, why would I 
completely close down that part of myself when I'm teaching yoga, for example. So mm. I started, you know, started, you know, working on bringing more of that into my classes. And instead of, you know, uh, instead of doing a, a relaxation practice where I'm telling people to, you know, relax their toes, then relax their shins, then relax their thighs, and then completely skip the genitals and now relax your belly and relax your chest. I was like, okay, cool. We're going to you know, do this relaxation. And when I got to the genitals, it's like, okay, now relax your pelvic floor and relax your testicles, relax your vulva. Like, can you relax your genitals? Can you release tension from this part of your body as we're doing this work and start to look towards your genitals, maybe cup them, put your hand on your heart and the other hand on your genitals and start to recognize that connection between the two and just started to bring a bit more of that um, connection to our sexuality into the yoga space. Mm. And, um, and the more that I did that, the more that I was open about it, the more I was honest about it, and the more I was, it's in a sense, being vulnerable, right? I was like, okay, this is what I'm passionate about. Here's what I'm interested in. And I'm just going to kind of like own that and just be in the space mm-hmm. with it. Um, you know, I, I was turned down by a lot of, you know, yoga. You know, some people complain. They said, look, Cam's, you know, bringing too much um, sexuality. We don't want this in the in the class. I kicked out a couple of yoga studios um, for wow. talking about sexuality, talking about genitals, talking about your anus, like, you know, I'm a big believer in like releasing tension from your anus. And if you're trying to circulate energy through your body, like a lot of yoga practices teach and you've not released any tension from your anus, then how do you expect to circulate energy through your body? But that's a whole another conversation. Um, and so, you know, these, these yoga studios with like, you know, images of Shakti and Shiva, divine feminine, divine masculine on the wall were like, yeah, we don't want any sexuality in the classes. So, wow, you know, we don't want you to teach. So I was, in a sense, you know, that vulnerability was like, again, I was rejected because of you know me wanting to, to speak about what I was passionate about. But then on the other half of, or the other side of that coin, I suppose, I had a whole bunch of people then wanted to come to the classes because that's what I was talking about and because that's what I was interested in, because I was mm-hmm. passionate and open about it. And so eventually I just started my own, doing my own classes, doing my own courses, just hiring out spaces rather than being beholden to them by teaching a regular class wow. there and had more people come to those classes that I did myself than they did to the regular classes. Wow. Uh, so that, that's something that I, I, you know, have had to learn, but also what I, what I am, am I think that I'm Through quite practice, good at yeah. yeah, is being open and as being vulnerable and just kind of like, yeah, just being, being in, having some integrity with what it is that I practice. Mm. It's a classic example of living in your truth and 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 the path shall like be shown to you hey yeah really totally powerful. cool man yeah. what's, what's your biggest fear right on either um my biggest fear man is pretty much related to that is like um being called out for not knowing something or being called out for um for doing something that i'm not qualified to do so mm-hmm. i've got this so my my thing my um my anxiety i suppose you could call it is like i i need to i need to learn as much as i can i need to be constantly studying i need to be constantly upskilling mm-hmm. i i can't rest on my laurels that's like my mm-hmm. my um shadow whatever you want to call it and so because of that then my and so i really value education i really value knowledge it's like one of my highest priorities so like the and so the, the flip side of that is then you know someone who um uh and so if I, if I don't diligently 
post about something or or teach something that I don't fully understand and fully know, my like biggest fear is someone who knows more than me, like calling me out and being like, that's fucking bullshit and and you're um you're not qualified to teach this and you're doing more damage than you are good or, or something something to that effect. Someone who's like higher up in terms of that knowledge hierarchy, kind of pointing a finger at me and being like, you are a fraud, right? It's that kind of imposter syndrome type thing. So um, I balance that out by trying to be as like data driven and as empirically studied and as knowledgeable as possible on a specific subject. Mm. Um, another reason why I suppose my personal philosophy is just like just talking to men about sexuality because who the fuck am I to talk to women about their bodies mm. um, if I don't have a woman's body? So yeah. that's that's my biggest fear, man, is someone like um, fully publicly belittling or calling me out on, on my bullshit. So yeah. I try mitigate that as much as possible i can resonate with that man for sure uh, i think a lot of people can do you feel like that like have you identified where that might come from in your life or have you considered that um i kind of have reflected on this a couple of times and i'm like not 100 percent sure where it comes from there's like little pieces here and there of like um like my um like my parents really valued education. Like that was a big thing. So um, maybe that's where this idea of instilling education in me comes from. Um, you know, and they sent me to like a private uh, all boys grammar school and I'd never you know, really had a choice to go there. It was always like, this is where you're going. You know, we enrolled you since you were born pretty much. Um, so it was that kind of like pressure and expectation yeah. around like knowing things um, and, and education. Um, yeah, and then like I always, always saw my dad as well, like being uh, both my mum and my dad are like really high achievers in what they do specifically. So my mum's like really competitive. My mum's actually a teacher, funnily enough. Um, so she, uh, she's very good at what she does. And my dad works in hospitality, has been doing, you know, the same thing and just like nailing that same thing, um, working in um, oyster bar oysters for for almost 40 years uh and you know and is very very well respected in in what he does and um and so i guess there was like a little bit of that as well setting that kind of framework up for like needing to be the best at one specific thing and yeah. kind of niching in that and and knowing all there is to know about that as well so yeah. um but this idea of, in that, eh? yeah totally man like yeah I, I guess like that's the that's like the positive side of it which is um which is like okay why do i want to be so educated and knowledgeable in one specific area I, maybe the fear kind of arose out of that because i hadn't healthily integrated that i was like well, i need to know i need to know if there was something that i didn't know um you know i can't really pinpoint any times where i've been called out or where someone's actually specifically said that i don't know something um or if they have where i haven't been able to back it up with further you know mm. argument or being able to hold my own um i was i was very into debating when i was in high school as well i was on the high school debate team wow. um and we went undefeated one year as well. I remember that. So, um, so I, I love being able to back up my own opinion. Like that's something that um, has yeah. has come from that desire to be knowledgeable and be educated about something. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the fear has just risen arisen out of my own insecurities, man. So, um, I don't think it's been something that's actually manifested in reality. Uh, it's just come from come from within me. I don't think it's something that's been yeah, triggered. It. I think it's something that I've just kind of manifested cultivated. in my own. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. What's one of your favorite quotes? My favorite quote, um, I'll paraphrase because I can't quote it, but um, was from Terence McKenna, who uh, for people who don't know, was a 
he was a psychonaut in the 1960s, studied a lot of psychedelics, entheogens, um, was an activist, was a philosopher. And to paraphrase the quote that I'm thinking of, he says, if you wholeheartedly believe in one thing, you automatically preclude yourself from believing in its opposite. And so for me, what that means is like, and he was, he used it in the context of religion specifically. So like if you're a hardline uh, Christian fundamentalist, right, you cannot believe that, uh, you, you know, someone who believes in um, Islam or Judaism or you, know, you, you, you have to hold opposing views because you, you, because you have committed yourself to believing in one doctrine. You can't believe in another doctrine. Um, you know, so all around this idea of dogma and, um, and what that kind of makes me resonate with or what I kind of reflect on, I suppose, when I hear that quote and when I did hear it for the first time was, was being open to having your mind changed, was being open to learning about something that, um, you know, contradicts or conflicts with your existing belief system, right? And having the ability to be flexible and to be adaptable and to integrate new knowledge and integrate new um, understandings into your current uh, framework for, mm. for, you know, perceiving the world, I suppose, uh, as soon as you like fully say, no, this is what I believe in. And I'm 100% like, you know, boxed into this belief system. Yeah. You, you can't have any more knowledge or any more, you know, you, you're rigid, I suppose. So, um, so this idea of like, you know, not being so boxed in and, and, you know, not precluding yourself from believing in its opposite is, it's is like um, fully expand yourself, your consciousness is, is that, that's the best way to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I try and do with my work as well. Like, um, I'll try and read up on, on, um, people that are like sex negative or people that are abstinence only. You know, I went to school in America and part of my big, um, light bulb moment when I was there, um, in terms of doing the work that I'm doing now was, you know, they had this, uh, framework for sexuality education, which was, you know, Christian approaches to sex ed. And it was, it was all abstinence only. It was all no sex before marriage. It was all homosexuality is a sin, all this stuff that you can kind of, you know, stereotypically think of as conservative Christian. Um, and so I, I am fascinated and intrigued by that. And I don't straight up vilify and belittle it. Even though I don't believe it, I do a lot of research into it because I think it's important for me to know about it mm. so that I can either then um, be aware if I'm talking to someone who holds those belief systems or so that I can, um, become a bit more solidified in what it is that I believe in. And, um, it's like, if I know what I don't believe in, then I, then I can by proxy know what I actually do. Yeah. Hold tr can either validate more of what you do, right? <clears throat> totally, man. So, yeah. so Terrence McKenna was a big influence for me to kind of be expansive in terms of at least my area of what I'm interested in. Yeah. You know, there's heaps of other things that I don't know about. Um, yeah. and I don't, claim to i can feel you on that i love another one of i don't know if it's a full quote i think there's more to it but another one from terence mckenna mckenna is uh nature loves courage mm. and isn't that the truth hey like if you think about what it, if you just look around in nature and you just think the ones that are courageous enough succeed you know and not to say that you don't succeed or that success is defined a certain way but it's like you can almost guarantee that if you use courage you're going to be more favored in life Mm, I love yeah. I love that stuff, man. Um, what's a conscious man to you, Cam? Ah, oh, conscious man, hey. Um, that word's so loaded, hey. Conscious. Yeah. What does it mean? I think like my own understanding of it, um, and coming from my own projections, I suppose, is like, um, 
a guy who's who's taking responsibility not only for like himself now in the moment but also taking responsibility like generationally as well like understanding that his wounding his trauma his his shit has kind of come from his dad who you know and or his parents i suppose his parental figures who's come from mm. you know their parental figures as well so understanding that it's like this you know passed down generational um thing that you're taking responsibility for not just kind of you um and then also starting to like i guess uh, i use the word like own a lot it's like like starting to own your sexuality starting to mm. own your your anxieties I, I guess like being being um being open about it like starting to voice it starting to do some work on it you know it's all well and good to kind of acknowledge and be aware of them but it's another thing to then take that next step to actually do something about it as well and this is what i kind of think of as regards to taking responsibility um so it's like showing up in a in a in a way that's you know being responsible for for your shit and um just doing some work on it and acknowledging and owning that you are you know, you're a fallible human being, right? And you, you know, I think there's, maybe this is my Australianism coming, like kind of coming through, but you know, um, this idea of like being humble, you know, is, is like you're, you're um, not this grandiose, you know, human, you know, guru figure, which, um, you know, that comes from a whole different train of thought that I could speak into later. But the, um, the idea of like just being a conscious person or a conscious man is like, you know, just, taking taking yourself off a pedestal i suppose right yeah. i think uh, there's a there's a lot of um a lot of like self pedestalization happening yeah. in like, uh, the um un quote unquote unconscious you know masculine kind of sphere so um i think just kind of like taking yourself down a notch doing the work doing you know working on your shit acknowledging that there's stuff that you can do to work on that you're not this infallible human being um and and then just showing up in a way that feels authentic and feels right and feels genuine for you rather than you know rather than putting on these masks like you know i was in that yoga studio um just showing up in a way that that you know is with integrity yeah man i feel that humility is one of the greatest gifts i think greatest qualities or behaviors that we could have i think going forward mm. as a conscious man but i love that explanation of like pedestaling is like realizing who you are and knowing that you're just human and you have faults what's one thing that challenges you right now Hmm. The thing that challenges me right now is, man, there's a lot, but I'll narrow this down <laughs> to one. Um, the thing that challenges me, I think the most man is, is, um, like is juggling, juggling responsibilities, juggling, um, priorities you know, and, and thinking, I guess like trying to think laterally in terms of priorities rather than hierarchically in terms of my priorities, right? Instead of like um, my priority, my top priority is work. And then my second priority is like my fiance. And then my third priority is like whatever might it, whatever might be. It's like, can I think of it in a way as like, okay, instead of putting one above the other and saying, this is more important than something else. Um, can I have everything on like an even playing field, you know, have them laterally kind of, uh, set up so that you know i can set aside time where this is my most important thing in this moment and then i can come back to that equal playing field and now it's like okay now i'm setting up uh, setting aside time for this to become my priority in this moment and then coming back um so i've always had issues with 
maybe not, time management probably isn't the word. Or like focus. Yeah, like focusing on one specific thing in that moment. Um, mm. So oftentimes, like uh, my fiance will tell you this, like if I'm spending time with her, um, you know, physically, I might be mentally at that moment spending time on work or if I'm, you know, uh, doing something on work, I'll have, you know, I'll be physically doing something work, but I'll be thinking about some other thing that I've got to do, you know, um, later on or next week or whatever it is. So I think, um, just, I, I guess maybe that's like also my definition of like being present, right. It's just kind of like being in the moment. Um, and that's always been, uh, I guess it's, it's always challenging and I think it always will be a challenge for me because I try and try and do too many things at once. Um, so, uh, especially like at the moment where, um, we're also trying to conceive, you know, we're on this conscious conception journey. So all of that's fatherhood and, and conception is kind of coming up and, um, you know, I'm wanting to get well versed in, you know, preconception health and, and then that whole nine month journey as well. Like what, and then after that as well, I'm kind of thinking, you know, what are we going to do with our, our kids and mm -hmm. you know, where we're going to move. So um, just trying to be a bit more present in the moment um, without kind of projecting into other areas of my life, I think is something that is a bit more, a uh, bit more of a challenge for me at the moment than I, than I, um, that I care to admit. Mm, I appreciate you, that, that authenticity, man, that honesty. It definitely can feel you on the focus though. Um, what helps you when you, when you pull back or you need to like fully be present? Like what's one of the things that helps you sort of come back into that present moment? Um, definitely, like definitely the breath, you mm -hmm. know, just taking a few moments, you know, it's so cliche, but like just stop and take a breath, you know, take a couple of deep breaths and just slow down. Um, that's been a huge thing for me is, is like noticing where I'm holding tension in my body as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, just taking a couple of moments just to like, <sighs> just relax, just kind of drop the tension in my shoulders, um, drop the breath down into my diaphragm. And, um, and if I'm spending time with my fiance, particularly like she is a big anchor for me. So like if I'm, if I'm up in the clouds or something like that, um, when I'm spending time with her, just like connecting with her, um, looking into her eyes, um, you know, giving her a big hug or just spending a bit of time, you know, kind of in her presence, just still being still is like a big thing to, to, to ground me. Mm. Um, if I'm with her specifically, mm. um, but if I'm doing something by myself, yeah, it's always yeah. take a couple of deep breaths, just relax, release that tension from the body. Um, and just kind of go, go through the process of continually doing that. It's not like, okay, now I've done it. It's never going to happen again. It's like, okay, now I've done it. Right now, noticing again where it's coming up, you know, a couple of seconds later, and noticing again this kind of continual readjusting process of like, okay, cool. Now I'm dropping into the space again and again and again. I think this idea that like, once you're, you know, once you're present, it's like, okay, cool. I've dropped in. I'm present. I'm in the space, and now that's not going to change for the duration of the time that I'm in that space. It's like, no, it's going to change every single moment. And it's like, okay, how can you constantly kind of adjust moment by moment to to continue to be present and showing up in the way that that you want to show up in that in that space um that's awesome man that's, that's awesome thank you what's unconditional love mean to you um unconditional love i mean uh, straight off the bat the first thing that pops into my head is the, like the dictionary definition of unconditional um which is like and again I'll, i guess i'll paraphrase this but you know it's loving someone without them needing to love you back right this this idea of being unconditional um and I suppose that's what I resonate with the most. I don't think I have my own definition for it, my own understanding of it. I think my own perception is is informed by that dictionary definition. And, and yeah. for me, um, 
yeah, for me, unconditional love is, yeah, not expecting anything in return. It's not, um, it's not, and I, I kind of frame this, I suppose, again, bringing it back to the work that I do with regards to sexuality work. It's like, you know, doing, doing something to your partner, um, you know, sexually speaking, or it could even, doesn't even have to be sexually. It's like, you know, um, non-sexually as well, or centrally speaking. So like a massage, a a central massage or giving them a, you know, um, or you know, giving them a, a, a genital massage or doing something for their pleasure without the expectation that after you finish doing that, they're going to do something to you and mm. give you some pleasure, right? That's how I kind of think about it. Um, and there's a lot, I feel like a lot of expectation, particularly from guys, that if they do something to their, like heterosexual guys, if they do something to their woman, that then she'll return the favor and do something, you know, sex, totally sexy yeah. or sexy. pleasure. Totally, yeah. That's, so that's that's a good example. That's a good, a relevant example to you, obviously, and um, to to your teachings. But yeah, it's so true. Eh? Like we do want. It's like it's just self selflessness in a sense of of giving without the expectation of receiving, but also receiving it if it comes back. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. So that's a whole another thing is actually being able to receive it properly. One hundred percent, man. <laughs> yeah. But do you believe in a great? This is the last question to this section. Do you believe in a greater power, and what is that to you? Um. Yeah, I mean, I believe in a greater power, I suppose, um, in the sense that like, you know, I believe that there's things that we can't perceive based on how, you know, I mean, we've only got five senses, you know, like there's, we can't see infrared light, for example, we can't see ultraviolet light, we can't, we can only, we can only see within a certain spectrum or a certain um, range, same thing, we can only hear, we can't hear a dog whistle, we can't hear like a really low um vibration sound we can only hear within a certain range as well of octaves so you know um so possibly the same thing um could go with you know with um with touch and with sensing and stuff so we've only been given this limited sensual experience you know in in the sense of like using the five senses so i believe there's something outside of that i believe there's things that we can't perceive and that we haven't um yet developed tools you know scientific tools to to understand and to perceive, you know, maybe we'll get there one day and we'll answer all those questions. Um, but, but there's definitely, you know, there's definitely something that is connecting us all. Um, you know, whether you want to think of it as like, you know, uh, you know, we're all vibrating, right? So we all have that, like that innate potential energy of like, you know, vibratory energy, we're all at a molecular level vibrating, like, and everything is vibrating. So it's like, does that connect us all that, like that energy of that vibration, um, at a molecular level, um, you know, or is there something outside the realm of our senses that we can't feel that connects us all? You know, I, um, if I want to get more esoteric and more spiritual, something that, um, really landed for me when I was, um, I was on a peyote journey, um, out in the Sonoran desert out in Arizona. Um, and yeah, it was, it was like a, it was like a, um, like a spirit walk, a vision quest. Um, it was three days out in the, out in the desert by myself and, and by yourself. The, yeah, yeah. They drop you out there and then you've got to kind of have to walk back and they give you this big jar of peyote. Um, Fuck yeah, it was, hell, it was pretty gnarly. Um, but the, the thing that really stood out to me was, um, so I started a fire and you know, I, I was drinking this peyote over the course of like 18 hours and, um, and I was sitting in front of this fire and I was throwing like, little twigs and little wood chips into this fire and had this kind of knowledge transmission understanding of like, so this fire is, um, 
is representative or symbolic of consciousness, right? Of of um, the thing that imbues our body, right? Without consciousness, without you know whatever it is that um, you know the, the awareness of self that we have in ourselves as human beings, we would just be like little flesh puppets, right? We'd just be like sacks of meat, essentially. There's something innately in us that makes us, you know, humans, that makes us like conscious beings. Um, and so like, that's what this fire was symbolic of, was this thing that, you know, imbues these wood chips, right? And so as you throw a, a wood chip into this fire, it becomes, you know, a, it becomes alive with that consciousness because it starts to burn. It starts to, it starts to, um, you know, shine its light. It starts to warm up. It starts to, you know, um, it starts to yeah go on fire but it it has a, a an expenditure date right because that little piece of wood isn't going to burn forever it only burns for a certain amount of time um and and you know there's uh a, an equivalence there to our life you know so we only imbue consciousness we only imbue that fire for a certain amount of time um and then we and then we die right our 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 twig so to speak the piece of wood that we are burns up and it, and it, and it dies and, and so the, the physical body that we have is no longer but we kind of contribute to that that overall consciousness that overall fire that's still burning and you know we kind of think of the analogy i suppose of like the ashes of our um wood chip you know kind of create the foundation for the next pieces of wood to go on top of that and and um and like this idea of fire being consciousness is like, you know, it's fire can also be used uh, for both positive and negative purposes, right? We can use fire to light things up, to create warmth and heat, um, to, and we can use it to, to um, do uh, uh, like in the Aboriginal context, we can use it to burn specific things so that we can farm better. So it has this like this positive connotation, but also fire can be like really destructive, can be really, um, can be really uh, detrimental and can, can cause a lot of chaos as well, uh, can, can kind of burn out of control. So similar to, to the way that we as humans kind of use conscious consciousness, right? It's like we can use it really positively. We can do a lot with it. We can re be really beneficial, but we can also use it for destruction, for chaos and, and um yeah, so I had this like, yeah, I guess this like understanding that, you know, this fire, this is like a, this eternal fire that will kind of always be burning. And it's like, you know, the, the, the we're just like little wood chips that get thrown into the fire, kind of flame for a little while, for a you know, tiny period of time in the grand scheme of this whole fire. And then, you know, and then we and we kind of cease to burn anymore, but the ashes that we are kind of contribute to the next load of wood chips that get thrown onto the fire and it kind of keeps on, keeps on churning over like that. So if I was going to speak like, you know, philosophically, that is kind of like what I, what I would kind of believe in. And that kind of came from a full peyote journey. Um, but whether, whether you could call that consciousness, like that's just the word that I use or whether you could call it spirit or whatever you want to, whatever language you have for it, that's kind of what I, what I kind of feel like is, is going on for us. Yeah, man, that's beautiful. Uh, the the peyote journey sounds like it would have been profound. Hey, was was it quite challenging? It was very challenging, man. I um. Did you like, eat through that three days? Were you? Because I'm familiar no, with vision quests. So you, I was fasting for 48 hours before I did it, and then I did um, I did have like a bunch of water and this uh, jar of like peyote liquid, pretty much, um, and. Yeah, it was, it was like, instead of like, uh, 
like a mushroom trip where you just kind of eat the mushroom straight up or like ayahuasca, right? Where you just kind of have a shot of ayah um, and then that's kind of it. Maybe you have like another shot a couple of hours later. The peyote, I was instructed to drink every 20 minutes to just take a sip of it. And I had this like huge mason jar of it. So I was like over the course of uh, you know, a whole day, pretty much, I was just drinking every 20 minutes, taking a sip, another 20 minutes, taking a sip, another 20 minutes, taking a sip. Um, and so I had this like really slow build up and a really slow tapering off. Um, and yeah, the height of it, because um, it wasn't much of a height because the, the build up was really slow and the tapering off was really slow. It was like very, um, and it was intended to be like that because it was intended to have this like long-term, um, you know, kind of two, three day experience. Um, the height of it was like around um, nighttime on that second day of being in the, you know, being in the presence of that fire of um, whether I hallucinated it or not, you know, being surrounded by animals. I heard horses, coyotes, um, you know, all these, all these wildlife creatures kind of around me because I was just sleeping next to a fire in the desert. Um, it was, yeah, it was pretty. Um, that would have been pretty intimidating, eh? Yeah, it was it was pretty frightening, man. And and I'd like I'd just come from an ayahuasca as well, so I did like um, a two week retreat with my brother uh, down in the Amazon jungle, um, experimenting and exploring like ayahuasca, which is you know um, oftentimes represented as like the the feminine, right? So ayahuasca is like the mother, the feminine energy, um, especially in the jungle as well. The jungle's like got this like it kind of underworld kind of dark mysterious erotic um feminine energy and then i went straight from that into you know the sonaran desert which is um in the middle of arizona is where i was and it was this really stark um dry cactus ridden landscape which is very masculine you know in that sense um it was it, it was yeah this like really interesting juxtaposition in terms of like energies and in terms of um in terms of like plant medicine archetypes as well of like going from that, you know, masculine energy of ayahuasca to the, almost like the grandfather energy of peyote, which is really, really um, yeah. interesting for me as well. And I resonated a lot more with the cactus than I did with, with, um, the with the, the vine. Yeah. So um, that's always been a, um, a big thing for me. And so, so I resonate more with like, you know, if I'm going to journey with a plant medicine, it'll be like San Pedro or, um, or peyote or some other type of, uh, of of cactus rather than rather than um you know i don't really have a big affinity for, for ayahuasca man that's really cool i definitely would be keen to do that that uh, vision quest because i think that the profound the like the profoundness of that experience going within yourself being faced with that fear of like i've got no bed i've got no comforts i'm by a fire at night with nature around me hearing coyotes hearing things like is someone going to come and get me you're 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 really just putting yourself in there to be faced with all your fears would you say that, that there's been like a after that experience you sort of like mellowed out and there was some fear that was sort of extracted through that process um yeah i, I think so man i think you you're alluding to something that i, I maybe um uh i don't know maybe I, i'm reluctant to share but i yeah i definitely felt like afterwards and even during as well of being like like I felt like I was you know, at that time as well, I was going through a big transition. I just graduated from university. Um, you know, I was kind of reinventing who I was as a person as well. Um, you know, through university, I, I, um, got, you know, uh, 
heavy into alcohol like i was drinking heaps and you know really built my identity around being the australian dude with like long dreadlocks who could like hold his liquor and who could you know pick up chicks and and you know, as part of that i kind of got into pickup artist the pickup artist scene and so i was like this completely different person to you know to a couple of months later where i was experimenting with ayahuasca and kind of going through this disillusion of the ego i suppose and, and identity um reforming so um so i had this like a lot of fear of like fuck who am i like what am i even like what am i even doing with my life like where do i want to go what what are some things that i value and and how do i align with those values you know and um and so part of like that whole six month i guess process of like um i also did a mushroom journey in um in the Sierra Nevada kind of ranges as well in a place called Lake Tahoe. Um, and, um, and so like these three like major experiences were like shifts for me of like, what am I holding on to with regards to that old identity of me being this like college student athlete who, you know, I'd also shaved my head as well. So it was like letting go of, you know, physical identity in terms of the dreadlocks and, and then letting go of like, energetic identity in terms of like how's how i was showing up as like a young man in terms of my sexuality as well like i was going through a lot of um sexual dysfunction issues as well because of the alcohol that i was drinking and because i wasn't being uh, authentic when i was showing up with these young women you know i was i was really anxious and really fucked up in terms of like my masculinity you know i, I tied my sexuality into my masculinity a lot so i was having a lot of you know erectile dysfunction issues and premature ejaculation issues and so as part of this journey into plant medicine i was also celibate um so it was just like a really big turning point in my life of being like who do i want to be like what type of man do i want to become um what what's my identity um and so so yeah there was a lot of fear man there was heaps of it you know i was like fuck who what have I done the last, you know, five years of my life? How did this contribute to, to the man that I am today? And, and, um, and again, that, I guess that fear of like being called out, being like, you know, how can you talk about sexuality stuff when you were this fucking, you know, little boy, pretty much, you know, as a college student, you know, you were, you were drinking heaps and so immature and that sort of stuff. So, so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of fear around that, that time of my life. Cause I, I wasn't sure who I was. Um, and so, yeah, that was, um, kind of from there after that it's been a big integration process and yeah. still probably integrating man it's totally, probably about yeah it's a beautiful process though isn't it mm, yeah you know? man plant medicine is next level yeah yeah so um <clears throat> that was our quick fire <laughs> like 50 minutes and this happened with timmy morrison too because there's just so much good stuff there that i i want to just keep diving into and my intention with this podcast for those people listening is to get as much goodness out as possible. So if I see a point, I want to address it. But now we're going to get into your real story, brother. And I mean, not your real story, but the deeper part of your story where we look at your conscious journey. And the first question of this section is, what did your life look like as unwoke? And what does it look like compared to now? Um, I mean, perfect transition from what I was just sharing, man. Yeah. Like when it's quote unquote unwoke. Yeah. Um, that word uh yeah i was man i was you know and i i relate this back to sexuality because it's what i what i live and breathe but you know i was i was i was a little boy man like I, I wasn't you know i wasn't um showing up for these young women that i was being sexual with you know i wasn't interested in like uh, i guess like i wasn't interested in in those deeper connections i was interested in the way i was portraying myself was like mm. you know that like uh you know 
slick dude who's like you know disinterested and aloof and is like you know just just wants the that that sexual experience that sexual encounter and like that mentality that like you know it's just another notch on my mm. belt or bedpost or whatever it is which is you know when i reflect on it and even in that moment when i was going through those kind of mentality i was like that's not what i want but it was what i felt was expected of me as a young college guy like i was supposed to play the field i was supposed to be that you know sow my wild oats and and um you know plant seed everywhere you know the that 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 expectation i felt was like i needed to be there i needed to do that um and and so like that conflict of like who i actually was um and what i was what i was portraying what i was showing coupled with a whole bunch of alcohol as well was um that conflict you know manifested as anxiety i was like i was like i'm i'm not showing up in the way that i want to show up uh and so that tension in my body and that conflict was like manifesting as dysfunctions and you know um and unable to get an erection or unable to to come or to come too quickly or you know um and and then by virtue of me being an athlete as well and being in that locker room environment you know i i then felt the need to um be really to overemphasize my sexual accomplishments right and and to talk about uh women in a specific way and to to frame my sexual encounters as like um you know i've said this before and i and some people kind of didn't understand what i meant but you know a lot of guys and i was like this as well when i were in that locker room kind of environment focus more on the female pleasure than they do on their own pleasure and people have kind of like bitten back at me and said well what about the what about the orgasm gap you know men men experience way more orgasms than women do um the way that i kind of explain that is like you know in that locker room environment you're never as a guy saying oh you know i experienced you know i had had the fucking best time and i you know had all this pleasure through my body had like a full body fucking pleasurable experience and it was so enjoyable right it's never you never you wouldn't say that right you'd get bullied you know you get fucking belittled um by by the guys who um who talk about sex like oh, i made her come so much and she was begging for it and she had like she in and and right and so it's framed as like you so know true. the perceived pleasure of the partner is more important than how much pleasure you would say oh yeah i just fucking nutted right it's like never like oh i felt it all all these juices through my body and it was such a beautiful experience mm. you just that, that's not how the conversation goes in the locker room so you know a lot of guys frame their their um sexual experiences and frame their their sexual achievements right um quote-unquote achievements on like what they what they perceive their partner experience right yeah. um and and so that's what i was doing that's what i was doing in the in this locker room even though i was having these pretty average sexual experiences because i wasn't really tuned into my own body um i wasn't tuned into my partner's body um you know i overcompensated by like um by like really focusing on like oral sex and and fingering and digital sex um and so like so if and i kind of had this like mentality of like oh if i could just make her orgasm um you know by performing oral sex or or just fingering her then then i wouldn't have to worry about you know the erection problems that i've had and and so then i was like you know focusing on making her orgasm and so putting pressure on her to come and and so it was just this like huge muddled mess of of sexual insecurity and anxiety and not having anyone to talk to about it and no one modeling any healthy behaviors for me in terms of like how to show up 
sexually with a woman or with myself even um so it was just this huge clusterfuck of of things man and um and so like it was and you know that started when i was 16 years old pretty much when i when i got my first you know um girlfriend i suppose you'd call her um and then that that was like a you know it's been like a 10-year journey man since then like i said i'm 26 turning 27 now and you know have done a huge turnaround in terms of the narrative that I have around sexuality, my own self and the way that I teach guys about it, but still something that I'm processing and unlearning and, yeah. and doing the work on um, myself, dude. Cause it's, cause no one's, well, at least, you know, five, seven years ago when I was really in the, th- in the throes of it, in the thick of it, there was no one modeling like what I should look like. You know, the, mm. the guys who were talking about sexuality were your fucking pickup artists. And so yeah. that's the, in with was these guys that were because i was interested in sexuality i was interested in sex i wanted to learn more about it yeah. the only guy talking about it were the fucking these you know pickup dudes and so i was like well okay that's what i'm interested in i'm interested in sex and these are the guys that are talking about it so i'll just go kind of follow them and kind of fell into that crowd and and then started to realize that that wasn't what i was interested in um in terms of like treating people the way that they treated them and mm. So kind of, you know, dropped out of that and and had this whole twisting navigating winding journey to kind of figure things out on my own and now you're sitting here on obviously a lot more awareness of your sexuality, a lot more um, openness about it, and also you're giving so much more, I guess, pleasure to yourself and to your partner in this sense and speaking of her with respect and the whole situation mm-hmm. with respect. So it's very different now, right? 100% man. And and the, the way that I frame my work is I try and be the guy that I needed to hear from seven years ago. Yeah, to I try and speak to my younger self. I try and speak to the young young boy that I was. Um, And because I feel like regardless of context and regardless of like certain circumstances, a lot of men go through that exact same journey, go through that exact same experience of feeling pressured to be one way of, you know, having issues in terms of connecting and being intimate with their sexual partners. Like regardless of like where they are in the world, they have a very similar story there's a very similar narrative around their early sexual experiences and and then that manifests in you know later adult life so um which i think why my work has resonated with so many dudes is because they like go oh fuck this guy's gone through the same shit that we've gone through you know and and he's kind of come out on the other side so um yeah so speaking to that story of my my earlier life is um yeah is why i think it it kind of resonates with a lot of dudes Mm, that's incredible man what was your biggest vice through that period? Was it was it sex or was it alcohol? Mm. You mentioned those two things. Definitely booze, man. It was yeah. definitely alcohol. Yeah, that was a huge crutch for me. Um, yeah, okay. For for a five year period, um, when I was in university, when I was in college over in America, I could probably count on one hand the amount of times that I was sexual with another person and mm. was sober. You know, uh, and and. and you know, I had a lot of sex in, in those kind of five years or I had a lot of sexual experiences and you know, I was just reliant on alcohol. I was reliant on like being uh, disinhibited, um, you know, on being um, you know, that liquid courage, mm. right? So false courage, you know, you know, nature loves courage, but, you know, when it comes from a place of um, inauthenticity and disingenuousness, yeah. then um, you, know, you don't get rewarded, right? You, are, you, you kind of get burned. So yeah, that was definitely. like... Um, so that was a big learning point for me. And, and so like a, a transition in my life was doing a year sober um, cool. and just kind of like fully coming off the booze and, and then integrating it in a healthy way into my into my um, lifestyle, I suppose, which is where I am today. But That's uh, powerful. I was a 
yeah, that was a huge thing for me, man, was, was um, yeah, not relying on alcohol to be sexual, yeah. which again, I feel like a lot of guys have gone through similar experiences. Bloody oath, man, yeah. And the funny th thing is, is the, like, that was the question I was going to ask you now, is the relationship you have with alcohol now, it, it's different, right? Like, do you drink certain things? Do you drink different things now? Is it like just one or two? Like, how's it different? Very different now, man. So I used to drink pretty much every day um, when I was in university. And then after taking a year off, I'd like cut down and then I took a full year off because um, I started noticing that I was starting to drink more and more and more. Um, so I cut cut booze off for a year. And now the way that I integrated into my life is like, um, like I'll, I'll, I only drink, like I'm really a big fan of craft beers. I, I work in hospitality. Oh, yeah, man. I love a craft beer. So I'll only... Like if I'm going to drink, I'll go out and buy one craft beer from like the local independent, um, you know, shop and, um, and I'll, I'll drink that one craft beer, you know, once a month. And, um, and a big reframe for me around alcohol and, and alcohol use was, um, one of my mentors, a guy called Simon Martin, um, framed like working behind the bar. Cause I was having a real, I was still in that year sober was working behind the bar. So I was having like this real, uh, conflict of interest, I suppose of like, okay, I'm kind of, tr I'm trying to reframe my relationship with alcohol. I'm trying to go sober, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm seeing all these people around me getting fucked up and spending all their money on booze and, you know, um, and, and yeah, just having this really unhealthy relationship with alcohol. And I'm contributing to that cause I'm selling it to them. I'm um, pouring them the drinks. Um, and so I, I had this like internal struggle going on. And so Simon helped me kind of reframe it, um, kind of relating it to plant medicine of being like, look, alcohol is made from plants, right? Alcohol is distilled, um, you know, it's distilled from potatoes. If you're thinking of vodka, it's distilled from, you know, um, if you think of tequila, that comes from cactus, you know, you've, so you've got this, you've got this potion or you've got this brew, um, that's been, um, being cultivated from or being harvested from a plant, a specific plant. Um, and the, you know, and we even call, you know, we call liquor spirits, right? And same way that, you know, we kind of call ayahuasca, the feminine mother spirit and peyote is like, you know, the grandfather spirit. And we've got these alcoholic drinks that are also called spirits, um, and have their own spirit because they're made from a specific plant. And, you know, the way that the bartender is pouring drinks for, you know, these, um, th these patrons, right. In a, you know, in a specific spot. So exactly the same as like ayahuasca, peyote, all these plant medicine ceremonies, you, you go to the Malocca if you're in you know the jungle and you drink ayahuasca in a specific ceremonial space. Mm. Um, same thing, you go to a bar and you, you drink spirits or right, alcohol in a specific space you know, that you're allocated. Um, you know, the, the shaman or the, the bartender pours the brew. They determine how much, right? They cut you off if you had too much. They, um, you know, they, they pour the drink, they serve it up, right? Thinking of cocktails here, they like make it um, palatable and, and serve it up in a way that you can, that you can drink it. Um, there's an exchange, right? In a plant medicine ceremony, there's that energetic exchange. Uh, in the bar scene, there's a monetary exchange, which again, money is kind of energy. You can kind of think of it as that. Um, in a plant medicine ceremony, there's purging and there's singing, uh, you know, uh, singing Icaros or plant mm -hmm. medicine songs. Uh, in a bar, there's a lot of vomiting, 
right? Purging. There's a lot of singing. Um, you know, kind of think of like all the lads going out and, and singing. Um, you know, so there's like these, this a lot like of correlation. Quick, yeah, between the two of them. Um, but we've kind of like really distorted the the Western way of like consuming spirits and, and you know, consuming plant medicine in terms of like alcohol. Um, we, we've kind of really framed it in a really negative way, right? As opposed to the way it's treated as a, a sacred medicine in um, in those kind of tribal cultures of, of um, you know, ayahuasca and peyote and all those San Pedro, um, all those plant medicines. So that was like a big turning point for me. I was like, oh, fuck, I've got to, you know, either need to like fully integrate that into, you know, my job as a bartender and be that, mm. you step into that role of like that quote unquote shaman or quote unquote medicine man yeah. and, and dishing out medicine. Or I need to like, you know, or if I don't resonate with that at all, which that was my, you know, response to it was I was like, I tried doing that and I was like, nah, this is too distorted. It's too, you know, people are just not treating this with respect, um, not treating, you know, the medicine, alcohol, you know, plant spirits with respect. Um, and so I had to, and so I quit my job. I, I stepped out of the, the bar scene and I haven't worked in hospitality since then. Wow, um, powerful, man. Yeah. So that was like a big helpful reframe for me. I was like, well, we've completely distorted the way that we relate to it. Um, and so that's, that's what's helped me kind of reframe my relationship with alcohol um, today. That's incredible, man. And, and do you, so do, like if you have one beer, you sort of have it more intentionally now? Yeah, hugely, man. Actually, yeah, and that's same thing. Kind of, I'm drinking coffee at the moment, so th same thing. Kind of, you know, goes with coffee. I'll try and hand grind my own coffee. Um, you know, I'll I'll um, make sure I get organic beans, and I'll have like a bit more of an intentional process, I suppose, with regards to consuming something. Um, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, way totally, more. totally agree with that, man. That's beautiful. So, in that same period, man, what emotion challenge you most? I've got anger, shame, guilt, fear, anxiety. Or was there sadness? Like, what really? Um, you did, what did you really challenge? You, what were you really challenged with? Probably anxiety and shame. You know, like I, a lot of people, um, a lot of people. But I, when, when um, I like, when I blow up, like I blow up in anger. So if something like really gets to me and I don't process it well and I don't handle myself, you know, anger is the first thing that I kind of that I, that I show. Um, and so, um, and so I've had, you know, whenever I, when I have blown up, I've had people say, Oh, you're such an angry person or your, your, your anger is like really whatever. But, uh, and I'm very similar to my mum like this. Like if I, if I blow up, I'll, I'll like blow up and get angry. But then like with a you know snap of the fingers, I'm like back to, wow. to even keel again. And it's like that anger got expressed and maybe it wasn't expressed super healthily but it kind of allowed itself to come out and now that it's out i feel better um and so even though maybe that hasn't always been a healthy way of expressing it it's always been something that i'm okay at dealing with um what i what has been a, a struggle for me and what you know still kind of is and definitely was when i was going through a bunch of like identity crisis and that unwork period of my life was was the anxiety that i was having and the shame that was then associated with that anxiety. So I was like, I was like anxious about, oh, you know, I was insecure about being a, being a man and not being able to pleasure a woman and not being able to get an erection and um, all this sort of shit um, about, you know, and I've never been like a really bulky kind of muscly dude as well. I've always kind of been like tall and lean um, or tall and lanky. And it's like, you know, body image issues and having anxiety about that. And then because I had those insecurities, anxieties, I was in, 
I then felt shameful about having those insecurities and anxieties because I was like, I'm supposed to be a guy. I'm supposed to not worry about these things. I'm supposed to just be able to get on and do it and man up and not have those insecurities and emotions. So I then felt a lot of shame about being anxious and insecure about things. And so that shame then compounded, you know, the anxiety and, and it just became like this net negative downward spiral. Mm, I feel that. Did you ever contribute that to something that happened in your past, that anger? Like, and... I know you talked briefly a little bit about that, but was like, is it significantly? Um, I, I think it's like, um, like my dad has a very, my dad has no relationship with anger. Like, you know, if he gets angry, instead of expressing it, he he's like the silent treatment. So mm. he will like just completely shut off and internalize it and bottle it up and like not express it at all. And my mum's like the complete opposite. If she gets angry, she'll explode. And then exactly the same as me. Once she's exploded, she'll be like, She'll come back and she'll be like, oh, so um, why is no one talking to me? You know, what's what's going on? Um, and so I, I have that kind of way of expressing. Um, I kind of have both. Like I'll if, I, if I'm angry at something, I'll kind of internalize it. And then if it kind of reaches a threshold, I'll, I'll blow and, um, you know, I'll, I'll um, hit a punching bag or I'll yell into a pillow or I'll express it in some way. And then I'll feel good after that. And I'll be like, oh, cool, I'm, I'm back to back to normal back to square one um so in terms of like where that's come from i think it's definitely a an uh imprint of both mum and dad's way of expressing and, and relating to their emotion of anger yeah. um so my process has just been like learning how to do that in a healthy way yeah. right of communicating that i'm feeling a little bit angry first and foremost which my dad never did and then warning someone or warning my fiance that like, Hey, I just need to go and vent this for a second. I need to go do some primal screaming or I need to go do some, you know, I need to go and beat my chest for a moment or whatever the fuck it is. Right. Um, so just like framing more of it, um, with communication, I suppose, yeah. rather than doing it. That's the, that's the learning process for me. And, and it's uh, cool. something I haven't gotten right. You know, um, I'm still kind of learning and still going, kind of going through that whole process, but yeah. uh, I feel like I'm slowly getting better at it. Yeah, it's you know you get the you cultivate the tools and you and the awareness and it gets easier and easier. But you still got that in there and you still got the acknowledgement, but you also still have the acceptance, which I think mm. is powerful, man. Uh, whose love did you crave most growing up, and who did you have to be to get it? Um, I think I craved dad's love the most growing up because he was like a not a super emotional guy. Like, um, like he, um wasn't a disciplinarian like he wasn't a um wasn't like over the top in terms of like um emotionally emotionally investing um mm. yeah he was he like credit to him he always showed up at like soccer games he always showed up at athletics like always took me places was like supportive in that regard um and was and was present right physically present but in terms of like emotionally present there was the there was it was it was lacking in that regard so i was kind of always looking for a maybe hug. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, he was okay with hugs, but it was like a, I guess it was like a acknowledgement, you know, is that like I've done something um, worthy and um, and he was like kind of proud. So he, because he works in hospitality, he's like very, very good at talking to, talking to strangers, talking to people at a bar scene. Um, but because that's what he does for a job, when he comes home, it's... Um, like silent he's like yeah. yeah i just need this is my resting time right and i don't want to be social when i'm at home mm. um and so because of that you know seeing him being super social to strangers and being like really um vocal and vibrant and stuff in a public setting to then have 
to then not have that at home felt like this um, discordance, right? And that like, I wasn't, I wasn't good enough to have, you know, that part of him. Um, yeah, you know, like he, he valued that strangers over, you know, over us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, I was always looking for like that response from him, that kind of like really vibrant, energetic response, um, by, by kind of doing things, by making him you know proud, by making him something worthy of like him to have that response for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that's probably, yeah. Did probably, you have to change the way that your, your character was around him to sort of get that? Or were you noticing yourself change if you, even if you look back now? Um, you know what? I left. So my, my way of dealing with that was like, okay, I'm 17. I'm moving to a different country. And that's the way that I kind of handled it was like, all right, I'm going to go do my own thing. And I don't even have to worry about what your reactions or responses are, including my mum's, um, because I'm, I'm, I've left, I'm gone. So I lived away from home for the most part of like five years when I, when I turned 17. Um, so that was like my way of kind of handling it was just to get a scholarship to play soccer in America and then just, and then bounce pretty much. Were you aware of that, that, that sort of why you were leaving at that point or has it come more aware now or did Um, you sort of have that in your underlying yeah, I think it was a little bit like under the surface, I was kind of like aware of it. Maybe I didn't want to acknowledge it or really admit it at the time, but definitely in hindsight, in retrospect, that was a huge part of why I wanted to go. Yeah, wow. Interesting. So talk to me about a low point in your life, Cam. What was one of those low points where, you know, you were just like at the bottom of the bottom and, and was suicide ever an option through growing up? Um, yeah, I, I've like... I did have a couple of thoughts of like self-harm and, and, um, uh, it was probably my like high school last year of high school, I suppose. Um, before I went into university, that was probably a big low point for me in terms of like, um, you know, I was in a really unhealthy relationship with my then girlfriend at the time. Like we were just kids, you know, we didn't know what the fuck we were doing. Um, and I was drinking heaps and, um, and it was just, yeah, I was, there was a lot of pressure on, uh, from my parents and also from me to like, you know, um, to get good grades in high school and, um, that last year, year 12 exams. And then also, you know, knew that I was going over to America as well. So it was kind of in this limbo period of like, well, what do I do for the next six months? And, yeah. and it just, yeah, it just had a lot of like, um, transitioning stuff happening for me that I wasn't dealing with very well. Um, and like I spent, I spent like three months like being silent my mum, like not talking to my mum. Um, like literally not saying like a word to her. And then there was like, you know, all this um, aggression towards, you know, my family. And so that was pretty, a pretty low point. And and there was times where I was like, you know, wanting to, my, my, one of my best friends at the time was going through a lot of mental health stuff as well. And so we kind of like fed off each other in terms of like bringing one another down, I suppose. And Mm -hmm. and having those thoughts of like, you know, self-harm and, and um, I don't think, you know, I don't think suicide was ever like an option, a real option, um, but definitely, you know, heading down that. down. That, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that was, you know, and then that all kind of changed as I moved over to America because I, I had a chance to kind of like reinvent myself a little bit. Unfortunately, I didn't reinvent myself in a very healthy way. You know, still relied a lot on alcohol, you know, reinvented myself in like that, you know, um, that player type of guy, you know, who picks up a lot of chicks. Yeah. Um, Totally. which I wasn't 
when I was in high school because I had a girlfriend. So, you know, again, had a had a transition period in my life, but wasn't a super healthy transition. And and it was then when I finished high school, kind of, no, sorry, finished college like four or five years later that I had another transition to kind of like go on the journey that I am on, where I am now pretty much. Yeah, yeah wicked, man. And what was a significant moment of awakening for you? Was it that that period where you, you know, you did the ayahuasca, you did all of that and coming out of that, was that your most significant moment of awakening? Um, yeah, probably, man, probably in terms of like a condensed six month period of like learning, um, and, and recreating identity for myself. That was probably a huge part. Um, there was little things, little things that popped up in terms of like my career and the work that I do, um, was like living in a rural town in, um, a place called Mount Vernon, Georgia which is in the middle of the deep South in the middle of the Bible belt of America. Um, and just kind of seeing the lack of sex education and the sexual repression, um, in that community, how that manifested in the young kids. Um, I say young kids, but I mean like, you know, 16, 17, 18 year olds. Um, so like that was a huge light bulb moment for me of like, whoa, people need some sexuality education. They need some, someone to talk to them about, you know, hormones and, and, and sacred sexuality. So that was like a huge light bulb moment as well. Um, yeah, there's been things across the across the, the the journey that have kind of shifted things in in my direction. Yeah, man, that's really cool because you you think about like the symbols in your life. I call these like the symbols of synchronicity. Like mm. these are all so there's so many symbols of synchronicity that led you to this path that you're on now, which is really powerful. What what healing modality was the most significant for you on this journey, man? On this conscious journey that helped you. Um, I mean, probably the first thing that comes to mind is yoga. Um, because I, you know, I, I seriously injured my back when I was playing soccer over in America. And as part of my rehabilitation process, I was introduced to Pilates and then through Pilates, I was introduced to yoga and this whole process of like slowing down, learning how to breathe, listening to my body, releasing tension from my body by virtue of doing all of that. I started noticing that I was having better sex that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, um, having erection problems anymore. I wasn't coming so quickly. I was able to take control of my actual physical experience. And by virtue of doing that, I was able to then go, oh, what am I noticing, you know, in terms of my emotions and how is that emotion affecting? You know, I had just more bodily awareness, right? And so by virtue of doing that, um, I then started having more emotional awareness. And then it just had this like positive feedback loop of being like, oh, now I know that when I'm anxious, I get tight. And when I get tight, it feeds back into my anxiety so I can release tension by doing some breath work and then by doing that, I then become more aware of where that anxiety is coming from. And so I can do some work on that and just had this like, um, yeah, this, this snowball effect of, of, um, just becoming more aware and more conscious. And through yoga, I was introduced to Tantra, um, Tantric philosophy, kind of classical Tantric Shaivism. And then through that, I was then introduced into Neo Tantra and the sacred sexuality scene. And then through that, I was then really interested in like human sexuality and human behavior and how that you know, integrates with philosophy and religion and sacred sexuality and Tantra. And so that's kind of where this whole process started from was, was me seriously injuring my back and, and having to slow the fuck down pretty much. Wow. So you did, yeah. So you've used a lot of yoga to get that body awareness. You also had a lot of, you used plant medicine and you used, I guess, breath work as well. There was like, but the, the predominant one was yoga. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That was the thing that kicked it all off for sure. We've got a couple of questions left. Did your friend group change through this process of you, of, of you changing? Yeah, 100%, man. Like, you know, I stopped going out to the bars with my mates. I stopped, you know, playing. I don't play competitive sport anymore. So 
all those things um, that I was doing and the friend groups that I had in those spaces just fell off and I had to like, I had to make new friends, man. I had to, you know, um, and so like part of my friend making journey was, um, you know, meeting people like Tim, meeting people like Tully, um, mm. for example, um, when I came back to Perth was like trying not to impress them. Like that was a big thing for me. It was like, oh, I don't want to, you know, I felt a really big, again, this father kind of wounding that I had of like wanting them to, to think that I was cool right? Wanting them to, to be, to, to approve of me um, and to think that I was worthy to kind of hang out with them. Um, and so like part of that journey was like voicing that to, to the two of them. For example, like I'm, I'm good friends with Tim and Tully now. Mm. Um, and part of that friendship journey was me being like, you know, I had to work through this process of me wanting to impress you guys. Um, and so the whole re um, reframing of my friendship you know, and how I was friends with people and what I was trying to do to, you know, instead of like having a bunch of dudes in my life who really tore me down and like belittled my yoga practice and wanted me to come out drinking instead of going out and meditating, um, you know, I had to then, you know, find a friend group of people that wanted to support that and wanted to be involved in it and were interested in what I was doing and, and that sort of stuff. So my, my friend group has shifted dramatically. Was there a period of aloneness as you were shifting? Like we had no yeah. one? Totally, man. I had, I thankfully had met my fiance at the time. So, um, she and I, um, you know, met in that tra kind of transition period and, um, she was going through a, a transition herself as well. So we kind of bonded. Wow. Perfect. And so we had each other during that time. And then we, and now, now we're a couple, we have a lot of friends who are couples as well. So that, again, that was a bit of a shift in our friend group as well. It's like, you know, um, starting to connect with people, conscious couples, people that are doing the work and supporting one another, um, which has been a big shift as well. Well, that's a common example, man, of, of you know, as you change, your friend groups do change, and, but there is a really big challenge amongst men or just people in general, men and women who are changing, who need to go through this, who are going through this, not need, but who are going through this period of, of loneliness or aloneness, depending on how you look at it, that it will get better and that it is a necessary part if you want to change. Like you can't, exp you can, there, there are people that do have conversations like that. Next question is, what part of your conscious journey are you most grateful for? Um, I think I'm most grateful for like, calling in a woman who was on the level right mm. i was i was when i was um that unwoke part of my life i was being sexual and relating with with women who were at that same level right they were not really wanting to do a lot of work on themselves they weren't um interested in in doing the things that i am interested in now so part mm. of the part of the journey that i'm really grateful for is like doing that work on myself and then being able to call in a partner who was interested in that same stuff, was ready to kind of go on that journey with me. And, um, and you know, if I hadn't been doing the work on myself, it's very cliche, right? It's like, yeah, if you, if you haven't done the work on yourself, then you know, if you don't love yourself, then how can you expect, you know, uh, somebody else to love you or, or, mm. um, how can you expect to love another person? So that was, that was a big thing that I was super grateful for and still am grateful for, um, to this day. Uh, so, um, awesome, yeah. Man. Cool. And last question, what's one tip that you would give your old self who's just starting this journey? Oh, one tip, man, would just be um, follow your curiosity. You know, there were so many things that I was curious about at the time that I didn't want to pursue because I was worried about how people would think about me or the, the labels that they would give to me. Um, you know, and, and thankfully, I kind of overcame a lot of that, but mm. it was a fucking hard going thing. So if I... If I could tell my younger self to just follow his curiosity and 
and not worry about what other people what other people think man just don't give a fuck about what other people say about you um then yeah just just go for it and that's that's you know has held me in good stead this last couple of years about following my curiosity and and doing what i'm doing now um if only i'd done that you know 10 years ago fuck yeah man that's awesome well thank you very much for joining me brother I appreciate your knowledge and I appreciate your time for coming here to share your story and, and for those that are listening, if you want to reach out to Cam, you'll have your social media link below. Thank you very much, brother. No worries, my dude. Thanks for having me on. And just be I got love in my eyes Bro, I can't see I'm gonna be who I'm destined to be Wokeness is taking my old self away Yeah, I put love into me I'm spreading that love Yo, don't you see Grab your cacao and drink it with me Cause wokeness is taking my old self away Woke man Wokey woke man Woke man Wokey woke man Woke man Wokey woke man Bring love and just be Woke man, wokey woke man, woke man, wokey woke man, woke man, wokey woke man, bring love and just be.